Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Hey everyone, Jessica Pfeiffer here. Welcome to Education Suspended, episode 11. Can't believe we're already here. We have a great interview today with... um, Someone that I am honored to work with. Her name is Jamila Gordon, and she's an assistant principal at Boston P8 in Aurora Public Schools. She brings so much insight about the year that we just finished in the midst of COVID um, and kind of what we need to keep at the forefront of our mind as leaders, especially for those that are administrators. Um, moving into next year, right? What does that look like? What do we prioritize to get back to the learning that everyone um, knows that we want to get back to? And really kind of just thinking about if we want to create an environment for our kids, we have to focus on the environment that we create for our our teachers and our staff. So I really enjoy that. And one of my favorite quotes um, that she talks about um, is just her her belief, and I couldn't agree more, right, that we in education are not in the business of producing cogs, um, that we really need to be focused on producing humans, but sometimes it feels... um, that we forget that sometimes. So it's an excellent interview. I also wanted to say for the next four episodes, we're gonna try something new at the end of each episode. Um, Luke Grainer, who we're actually gonna be releasing his episode here pretty soon, um, is gonna be providing uh, two to four minute rhythmic activities that you're able to use in the classroom, at home, even for yourself to regulate. So each week it's gonna be something new. So make sure again, you stick um, through the entire episode and hopefully you find those helpful. All right, y'all. Enjoy Education Suspended with Jamila Gordon. Well, Jamila, welcome, welcome to Education Suspended. Uh, we're excited to have you here. Uh, I know of the great work that you do because you are an assistant principal in Aurora Public Schools where I work part-time. Uh, but we, I wanted to have you on here because I know you have a lot to share. So we also know that you are headed on a road trip directly after this. So <laughs> I, now, I, now I'm extra grateful for the time that you've given us. <laughs> For this 18 hour road trip ahead of you. Um, but let's start the same. So we'd love if you just introduce yourself to our listeners, um, talk about what you do, kind of your professional trajectory, how you got here. And, and if you feel comfortable, we'd love for you to reflect a little bit, even on your own experience as a student. All right. Um, so my name is Jamila Gordon. As Jessica said, I'm an assistant principal in Aurora Public Schools. Um, I came to that uh, role through being a school counselor. And originally, um, I started out as a juvenile detention worker in the state of Washington. Um, while I was working there, there's a lot of stuff that you see working in juvenile corrections. And one day, a student or a, a kid in uh, the juvenile center said to me, why aren't you a counselor? Um, you're really good at working with kids and then I was like huh why aren't I a counselor and so from like I had a mental health day from work and I had just had this epiphany I need to go back to school and become a a counselor so I packed up my ditty bag and I moved from Washington to Oregon and um, took a counseling program and I was a counselor for 10 years before I decided to, to like explore different kinds of leadership roles. And I ended up in Colorado because I was thinking about getting my doctorate in educational um leadership Um, but I had to be a resident first and then different things happen. And I became an assistant principal. I still going to head down that path of becoming, um, Dr. Gordon at some point in my life, but, um, right now I'm enjoying being an assistant principal, um, school 
thinking about my history in school, um, I was a really, really good student, um, but living in Eastern Washington, there weren't a lot of people of color. And so through my entire K-12 experience, I never had a black teacher or a black counselor. Um, there was a there was one black teacher in my high school, but I never ended up having her. Um, and then I also saw from the impact of my younger brothers, just about how the racist system um, can impact the trajectory of people. And my brothers were, or are a prime example of the school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, they had um, teachers in their lives and administrators in their lives who um, I didn't get it at the time, but were uh, focused on them. They were always the usual suspects. They were getting suspended all the time. Um, and so I saw firsthand how the school system can really impact um, a person in their life and where they end up going and their confidence around um, the educational system. Well, that's really interesting. Do you I mean, you can say no, because um, I want to kind of respect that personal space, but you, you know, you just indicated you didn't understand till later on, right? Like what was that realization and that process like for you to kind of see the impact on your, on your family? Well, it was, so being in corrections, um, I worked that for eight years. And so, um, it was interesting, you know, I didn't realize how naive I was <laughs> until I started working corrections. Um, but just seeing how many people weren't in school, like how many of those kids were in school. And most of them were um, kids of color. Um, in Eastern Washington, it was a lot of um, people, um, like a lot, a lot of Mexican immigrants, like some of them, a lot of migrant families. So we had a lot of families. And then it was like basically that and, and white kids. And I noticed just this great disparity um, between um, the sentences that white kids tend to get and then the, um, the kids of color. Um, and then most of them were in school. Um, and so I was just thinking, interesting, like, why aren't you in school? Um, you know, who are the adults in your life who support you? If you were a white kid, you were more likely to get um, drug treatment as opposed to some sort of um, sentence where you had to go away to like a correctional institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I started working in schools, um, there was a prime example of there's this little fifth grader um, when I was living in Oregon and he had, he had ADD and I'm not a big person with medication, but like he was one of those, those kids where it's just like, oh, there's a huge difference between when you are medicated and when you're not. And he, the people were just always kind of like calling his name and just like focusing on him when I would also see other students with the same behavior. And I'm like, what is that? What is that about? And then when he was medicated, there's like, oh, he's such a great student. I'm like, and should a child have to medicate just for you to think that he's a good student and other students mm. who, and he was a black student. And so we're thinking about if he was a white student, would we care as much? And so it was just kind of me noticing these little things as I was an intern and then looking at data. I mean, the data shows it, you know, when I was um, working in Washington, I moved back to Washington. So I, I lived there, moved, went back. <laughs> and so um there is at one of my schools, seventh grade black girls were three times more likely um, to have some sort of suspension, expulsion. Um, and it was just one of those things where I'm like, what, what is this about? And I would go into classrooms and people would say, well, I need you to really, you know, look at this student and see what's going on. And I'm like, but I'm not noticing anything different. You've already created a story in your brain probably about this particular student. So maybe that's what you're seeing, but I didn't see anything. And I was, and I wondered what that was about though, because I wasn't that student growing up. I was that very quiet, you know, studious kid. And so it couldn't be that I, you know, quote unquote related on that level because I wasn't a student who acted out um, and had any kind of behaviors that adults would be like, oh, she's, you know, quote unquote, a troublemaker. So 
I didn't, I do just a lot of noticings and, um, and one thing I noticed, or I kind of became aware of is one of my friends, she was a white teacher, middle school. And she said, I'm really struggling with my black and brown students. Um, and like, especially the boys. And I said, well, what kind of things are you saying in class? Well, the way she spoke, it sounded more like suggestions as opposed to a directive. And so, hey, would you like to take a seat? Um, it would be nice if you X, Y, and Z. And I said, well, <laughs> um, I'm gonna you know, have this kind of blanket stereotype, but like in black homes, especially like mine, it was have a seat, <laughs> not would you like to have a seat? Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, also, when you say that it's a question. And so you give the person an opportunity to say no. And so you've given the person an opportunity to say no, and then they say no, and you get upset. Well, you've just set that child up for getting in trouble. And so it's just like these little pieces like here and there throughout my career where I've been like, well, we're setting kids up to, to fail in a lot of ways. We're setting kids up to um, be exposed to disciplines such as suspensions and expulsions and um, that type of thing. And, um, or, you know, and so I'm just so aware of it now that I can't unsee it. And then I make sure that everybody I'm around I don't know if they can see it, but I may try to make them aware of it. Yeah. Go ahead, Greener. Well, I, I was just one more thing back on your work in the, in the juvenile justice system as it relates to school. Did you, what, what did you notice any patterns of the kids that you worked with regarding their school experience? Was it a factor in, in maybe even in being there? Um, well, like I said, they didn't, they didn't go. Um, but then oftentimes it was, um, families who, um, they worked and so they couldn't, you know, say that like, oh, you really need to be at school, you know, because parent went to school or to work at six in the morning, assuming their child (laughs) was going to school. Um, it was a lot of the black and brown kids who weren't going. And so, um, but I kind of, guessed out of some of that stuff was just like, well, my teachers don't understand me. They're not fair. They don't like me. Um, and so school wasn't a safe place. Um, I had kids where 15, 16 years old had never read a book before. Um, and, and so what I would do, and it was a struggle for me because I didn't like some of these books, but like Nicholas Sparks, you know, like the notebook and that type of stuff. A lot of the girls like those books. And so when I worked the graveyard shift, I would read it overnight, the, the, one of the chapters. And then in the morning we would talk about it. And that's how I got kids to read books. Um, but it was just, the school experience wasn't great for them and they didn't feel accepted and wanted except for at the juvenile detention school. Cause we had an amazing, amazing teacher who made school fun for kids, but outside oh. of, outside of the, the juvenile corrections, they didn't attend cause it wasn't something, a place that was welcoming. What, what would that teacher do? I'm curious. To um, she, um, first of all, come, come as you are um, enter into the, the educational experience where, where like you are, as opposed to, oh, you're 16. So you should be doing X, Y, and Z. She understood that there were huge gaps in a lot of the kids schooling. And so, um, she would tell stories. Um, she had a, a therapy dog that she would bring in. And so the kids got the opportunity to do that. Um, she would, um, 
just like play a lot of games and yeah. just like, and talk to them as, as people. Like, you know, we, like my dad used to say to me all the time, I will always love you, but I don't always like the things that you do. And so that's how she was with the kids. Like you're here because something happened, <laughs> you know, something like a law was broken or you've been accused of something and you're still a human being worthy of respect and love. And so that's what she really, um, showed to the kids. And so they were always like, Miss C, Mrs. C. And, and she would get them to do things that you like, you would never imagine. Like, you know, some of our kids would do because, um, most of the time it's like, I'm not doing that. And, you know, swear words that went wrong <laughs> with some of that stuff, but, yeah. um, between that setting and then, you know, just the, you know, me, like reading my little, my little book club with kids, um, we got kids like a little bit more interested in school. Um, and some of them ended up just doing things, um, like, um, Oh, what is that? Uh, Job Corps, when they got old enough. Um, We had kids where we brought in the GED program. So when they had the opportunity, when they're old enough, they got to do that. So um, they could go out to the workforce when they were ready. Um, Because because traditional school is not for everybody. It just really isn't. Well, I love that story. Just even her insightfulness to to meet them where they're at, right? Yeah. And you got yeah. a bunch of 16-year-olds coming that have no educational real experiences. And, you know, from that, I guess, essential like developmental lens, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's times that she probably felt like she was an elementary school teacher with some yeah. of these kids. And, right. and she found a really yeah. respectful way to meet them in a developmentally appropriate fashion, which is really cool and very yeah. insightful. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering you know, for you kind of even, you know, sharing your own, your own story for you as a student, but in particular with your, with your brothers, right. Um, And then in this work in, in juvenile justice, right. And these detention centers, I think this theme is coming up of probably some, some sense of collective trauma that you have seen. And I'm wondering for you, if you can speak a little bit about kind of the impact of, of this collective trauma and how it influences you and, and how you lead and kind of how you want to lead. Uh, <laughs> there was just so much. I didn't realize that there was a different world outside of what I'd experienced as a child. Um, and so when I started working in corrections, I was like, wow, like other people's lived experiences with their family of origin was very, very different from mine. And so that was an awakening for me. Um, And so looking um, into, you know, to have that little glimpse into other people's lives where, um, you know, I mean, divorce is fairly common, but then it was, you know, divorce and then there was a drug use or incarceration or, different kinds of abuses, you know, sexual, physical, that type of stuff. Um, and just seeing like the, the hurt that came along with that. And I was still like, this has been probably 15 years now. And a a kid said to me, he was a 16 year old. He said, they want us to stop using drugs, but they never help us with the reason why we use drugs. Mm. And, and that just has stuck with me because, you know, we, how we approach things is just like, well, you just need to stop that. Well, (laughs) you know, I, I ease my pain through the drugs. This is how I medicate. I don't know what to do. Um, we had a lot of girls who would cut, um, and, and the stuff that, that kids did to survive, you know, we had a lot of, and I say girls, cause that's mostly who, who would do it. Like who would sell their bodies to be able to get drugs. Um, we had a lot of boys who were involved in gangs because, you know, when people partied, you had access to alcohol and drugs. And so seeing that, and then, you know, having that epiphany about wanting to be a counselor, when I went to my counseling program, 
I had seen things and heard of things that many of my peers had not. Mm -hmm. And so when I went into schools, um, first of all, I wasn't shocked by, by much. Um, but then it was interesting to, cause I started off in elementary to see kids before they got to the point where they could potentially go into the justice system. Right. And so that was like kind of that, that path where I was able to recognize some of the warning signs, um, with regards to family of origin, um, what's going on in the classroom with the teachers, um, just like some behaviors sometimes that you like would see with other kids. Um, and so it was just something that I would like, just kind of be, I was super aware of these things because I saw the product of, um, poor educational experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so then by nature, I've always been the person who is like, you know, the, I don't like the, the term underdog, but just that, that person who's maybe a bit on the fringe from like when I was a little kid, oh, you don't have a friend, I'll be your friend. And so then because that's my nature, um, going into schools, then I was very keyed into that. I think that's probably why I'm a counselor because I'm a huge empath. And so being able to, okay, this, this doesn't feel right. I'm not sure why it doesn't feel right. And so let me go and explore in the classroom and have conversations around, um, I'm noticing this, this child always, his name is always called for this behavior. And then these three other kids who were, have very similar behaviors, that's not happening and trying to create that awareness, awareness. Um, and then thinking about, um, structures, like I'm not really into like everything needs to be regimented, but also recognizing that, um, when things aren't, um, when things are unpredictable, for kids, yeah. um, then it makes them really hard for them to engage, right? Yeah. And so making sure that we have predictable patterns in, in classrooms, we have the same set of expectations day in and day out. When you walk into the classroom, it's the warm up. I sit here, I do this and those type of things. And so I've really worked almost my entire time in education to really promote having those predictable systems for folks. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and so that's just like some of the things that have been important to me um, as a counselor, as a school leader, um, this year it's been hard because of the pandemic and there's, you're in school. No, you're not in school. You're on a, you're on a computer. Oh, we're back in school, but only half of us are at school and you're at school one week, but not the other week. And so having that predictability um, has been harder. Mm -hmm. um, but while you're present, it should always look the same as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Well, I, I also love this, the sense of, you know, your, whether it's your experience or kind of what you've witnessed of, of the collective trauma of education, that as a leader, it drives how you work with, with the adults. And, yeah. and you just, you, I loved how you said it, but I help them notice. There's so many other ways that you could do it that probably wouldn't be as productive, but the fact that you just take time to give them, you know, these doses of feedback of just giving them something to inquire about. Hey, I wonder what this is about versus kind of, you know, jumping in there saying, this is not okay. So that's just, I like that frame of reference that you used. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that comes from, so when I was in my counseling program, we had to do our own counseling. So I had to do individual counseling and group counseling. And I went to a counselor who told me something I wasn't ready to hear. Mm -hmm. And I never went back to her. And, and so I've become very conscious of, if I try to force something on, on someone who just isn't ready to hear, even though they probably should hear it, then I may lose that connection with them. And so the inquiry model is really important to me. You know, like you were saying, I'm, I'm wondering, um, I had a noticing about this, like, you know, can you tell me more? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'd like to dive deeper on how you're working with with your staff members. What what is working in in kind of changing the the, the template of maybe how how we do business in school uh, in a lot of ways, but you you having a huge influence at your school and your position. What's working with the staff and what's hard? Both both ways. Um. I'll start with what's working. Um, what's working is that um, building relationships is one of the things that comes easily to me, you know? And so that's something, you know, I have, you know, a sense of humor. I try to, you know, be playful um, and then respect the wisdom, of the wisdom that they come with, right? I don't have yeah. all the answers. And so we collaborate together to try to figure out how to do things uh, best. Um, and so, um, this is something that's not working, but I'm going to try to make it like, I'll, I'll come back to it, but evaluations we ha- we still need to do. And so I'll, I'll circle back around to that in a second. But um, when I first started doing evaluations with teachers, um, it was a lot of noticings of all the wonderful things that they're doing in the classroom. And um, even if there were some things that I was like, well, we should talk about this. I kind of put a pin in that and waited to another time because it's like our first meeting together should not be oh, well, what about these things? You know, it should be like, yeah. you know, let's let's talk about how you were just shining in the classroom. Um, so those conversations have made it easier to have harder conversations, um, have conversations about, oh, I was noticing that um, these kids were doing something that wasn't part of the expectation and you didn't say anything to those kids but some other kids who weren't meeting expectation got called out. Like, you know, did you notice that there's some, you know, some discrepancies between those two things or, um, you know, um, you, that you said something to that kid, you know, I wonder how, what kind of impact that would have had on them. And so, um, those conversations are good. Um, being able to just like, you know, pop in and see that, you know, oh, you're having this conversation with kid and you're doing this great thing. And in spite of it, I mean, in spite of all the things that are happening, teachers are really rocking it. You know, they're, I went into a first grade classroom and they were doing reading corners. They had, they were writing this, these little six-year-olds and the teacher's like, okay, draw out your story. And, and that was really cool yeah. to see kids really working it um, and just really engaging in school. Um, but some of the things are, that aren't working that I mentioned evaluations is that I wish as a professional, um, and maybe this is my counseling background, that I could just really focus on you as a human at my school who needs to work with children. And um, mm-hmm. there's like this tacit disapproval around social emotional learning for both staff and for students. And, you know, we need to be focused on academics. We need to be focusing on the assessments, you know? And so that's that piece of like the the demoralization type of thing though, because my instinct says I should be taking care of humans. If you're not okay as a teacher, you're dysregulated, you feel like your cup is empty, like your batteries are just completely drained, then how do you show up for kids? And when I don't get an opportunity as as a, as a building leader to be able to say, you know what, your kids are having a rough time today. Let's not think about this reading assignment. Like what are the things that these kids need to do? Would a community circle be good? Would 10 minutes outside riding around be good? I mean, what are the things that would be helpful to your kids? Um, excuse me, not being able to have the freedom to do that has been really challenging for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's this, this, yeah. this parallel process of like this, 
reality that you understand that if I'm not doing what I need my teachers to do for the kids, if I'm not providing that for them, it's virtually impossible for them to do that for the kids, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to, we, we forget, right. That the importance of modeling in teaching new skills is huge, but you're modeling it for the teachers. So like, I'm going to model for you so that you can do this with the students. Right. I love it. I love it. it. Yeah. Now you brought up this, you know, this, this demoralization theme, and and I'd like to go into that a little bit deeper because I think, and I don't think all systems are like this, but I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about like, what is, uh, you know, this, this business as usual model from a demoralization perspective, what do you think the influence is on our adults um, in particular during this pandemic? Um, and then um, not just the COVID pandemic, right. But also like the, the racial inequities pandemic. I have seen some institutions just really just keep going on and not really address any of this. Yeah. And that's, there have been, um, and we of course was like the platitudes and that type of stuff when things first happen and people are just like, we're all in this together and all the, those type of things. Um, and then when that fades, um, when the hashtags disappear, then we're just kind of back to, um, just the way we've always done things. And so I think the pandemic has just shown even more starkly than inequities that exist. Um, but what's what the, what the demoralization for me is just, well, first of all, the toxic positivity, right? Like self-care, 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 you know? And I'm just like, yes, you should care for self. And how is this system caring for you? You walk into this building every single day to work with kids. What are we doing to help you fill up your cup even just a little bit before you walk in to see your kiddos. Um, And we're not doing that because um, we're administering assessments, right? Like, you know, I'm thinking about, because I'm the assessment coordinator at my school, we just finished access for all of our language learners. Um, We had interim assessments right around that same time. We have state testing, CMAS testing after break somewhere in that mix, we have the diagnostics for kids. Um, we just had gifted and talented right at this exact same time. And that doesn't include all the other things that we're doing, right? Yeah. And so um, one thing that people are saying is, oh, we need to get kids back into school because of mental health. They need to be connected to their peers. They need to have access to mental health. Okay, but you're also saying when they get back, they need to take standardized testing. And so in my mind, those things don't even connect. Like how are you getting them back in to assess them? Like, how is that giving them kids what they need? Right. Um, and so, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not a big fan of testing anyway, but like, it's just like my values are to care for people, you know, and, and, and it's important to care for our teachers um, because they are the direct conduit to our students. And in the particular area that I work in, there's a lot of trauma. We have a lot of families who are, are refugees. Um, and then we have well, just a lot of migrant families for, you know, for different reasons. It may not be refugees, but it could have been leaving a, a tough situation. And it's incredibly um, impacted with like, uh, like SES and that type of stuff. And so, and there's from the corner where I can see outside um, down the street, there was a murder um, like a block and a half from the school. Um, There's shootings and that type of stuff. So there's just a lot of stuff that goes on in our neighborhood. We're not even talking about the impact of, oh, your family couldn't work at the beginning of the pandemic um, because they weren't um, essential workers or that business shut down 
Um, you don't have access to internet. Um, my district has given folks access to technology. So that's not as big of a deal, but globally, or not globally, but nationally, that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just the things where it's just like, okay, we're gonna do school like we've always done, which first of all, hasn't worked <laughs> except for white girls really. Um, and then we're gonna pretend like the pandemic it doesn't exist. And all the trauma that's happened to families, there are more homeless people than I've ever seen in Denver. I've only lived here for four years and I would say it's doubled at least, if not more. Um, We're not even addressing that. We're not addressing the fact that there are families living on top of each other if they do have homes. Um, We're pretending that everybody's an English speaker and they are able to access the curriculum that we have for folks. I mean, there's just all these things that we're we're pretending that are real that aren't real, um, and it's and it's not it's not burnout, right? Like I'm tired, but I'm tired. I think because what I believe is right isn't necessarily the things I get to do on a regular basis. Yeah, I was working yeah, with a, a leadership uh, team in a building, and not in our district, just through intricate roots. And this theme, they just kept saying, you know, Jessica, we need help. We need a different way to, to train self-care. We keep training self-care, but we keep having our staff coming back saying they need more. They need more. Uh, and I had to have a difficult conversation with them of like, this is beyond the training. The reason you have these staff coming back is that you're talking about something, but you're not offering the opportunity opportunity to actually do it. And so kind of having them, you know, think of like, you could, you know, to your point, right? We can talk about self-care all we want, but if we're not providing that structure during the day for our staff mm-hmm. to actually fill their cup, that you're, you're especially right now kind of wasting, wasting your breath, which is really sad. Yeah. I think a, a number of districts I've been able to work with lately who are also tiring of the word self-care. I said, let's just flip the script a little bit. It's about community care. Yes. It's really about how we all care for each other because in that caring, you get the self-care. Your bucket fills too when you're out caring for everyone else in your staff and taking a community care approach. That's the conversation I'd like to see us have more often because I think more people are willing to do that. Yeah. And ha- and have it built in to the school day, not Oh, at 3.30, we're getting together. Like, I'm tired. Like, when 3.30 comes, I want my day to be done. I want to go home and do whatever I need to do to take care of myself. But, like, and that's the hard part, right? Like, we're so focused on we need to get all these things done during the day. um, And then just people just collapse, right? Like, there are people who go home crying or get to their car and start crying and cry all the way home. Um, There are people who, we have jobs in education, but someone's partner may not. The other people in their home may not, you know, you may be the only person who's providing in your home, your side gig has disappeared because that's not an essential job. I mean, there's all these other stressors and, and people, people need, need to be like, we need to give like this collective hug and then we can't do it in a pandemic, but you know, that's metaphorical hug of just like, what are the things that people need and people need to be seen. They need to be heard. And it needs to be something that happens in their regular space, as opposed to, I have to go somewhere to seek that because if I'm already tired, mm-hmm. good luck trying to get me to go do that. I can't do any more than I'm already doing. And I think that's the kind of the sentiment for a lot of people is like, I'm doing all I can. Yeah. 
Well, and if we have that, I like that that community care perspective. Ideally, we would see and be able to step back the the influences of what we're doing and how it's it's not equal, right? So, you know, we think about getting these kids back to test. It's not rocket science how that's going to go for our low SES for our students of color for our students whose English you know English is not maybe their primary language. It's going to exacerbate the inequities that have existed this entire pandemic. But if we have that ideal community sense, uh, leaders would be able to acknowledge that of like, no, we're not doing this because it's not equal. Right. And it never has been, you know, to no, go well, to back to that. Yeah. yeah. Like, because like, you know, when you were asking the question before about like, you know, even outside of pandemic, the assessments are are skewed for, for, for middle-class white folks. Right. You know, and so, um, the, those are the families who during this pandemic have been able to be home to support their kids. Um, those are the families who are the English speakers. Those are the ones who have the technology, those, you know, all those different things. Um, you have access still to, to medical care. You have access still to mental health. If you want to, you know, a lot of our kids, um, who come from highly impacted neighborhoods, school is where you get that. And so if we're not able to have access to school, then I can't go to the dentist. I can't see my counselor. I can't, you know, do all these different things. Um, excuse me. Um, you know, even our, our food bank that, that would come to our school on Tuesdays for a short time wasn't coming because they lost funding because of impacts because of the pandemic. And so then how are we feeding our kids? Because schools provide meals twice per day in my school, actually, uh, breakfast, lunch, a snack at the end of the day. So when kids leave the building, we provide them a snack too. And so thinking about a family who's really struggling with money three times a day to get your kid fed, and all of a sudden you don't have that anymore. Yeah. And we're seeing we're supposed to be doing school as usual. That doesn't like in my mind, I'm like, how, how does that work? Like, who, who is this person who is looking at these facts and saying that this is manageable, that this is actually something that's going to work? Because I want to be in their brain and try to figure out what they're seeing that I'm not. (laughs) And I'm curious of just, and I don't want to go off topic, but I've been asking myself, like, what is going to be the influence of this year on teacher retention and on teacher recruitment, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be shocked in the next couple of years if we see less people say, no, I want to become a teacher. Because it's just kind of like, you know, the the, the veil has been lifted on so much stuff, um, which I hope is not going to be the case. And people maybe have the opposite reaction of like, no, this is not okay, And I'm going to jump in the field because I'm going to change it. But I think it'll be really interesting. Yeah. And I, that's something that's been on my mind as well. I've heard here in Colorado through um, some of the unions that 40% of teachers are looking at leaving the profession. Um, and then just, we lose, I think, I think it's maybe a quarter every single year anyway, just because, you know, teachings is is a hard gig. And so after this year, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. Um, we were heroes at the very beginning of the pandemic. And then now we've been, you know, villainized because we don't want to go back because we want to be safe. And so that's been an interesting, um, path to navigate. And who's like, wow, why we turned on us so quickly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. I'm, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing just like personally, right? Because it's, it's been a long year, but like as an admin, um, as a leader, right? And who focuses on that, that, that shifting of the adults in the system, 
where do you see yourself? What, what has this inspired you in different ways? Is this to kind of change the system? Um, so the, the thought about going back to school, um, to get my doctorate, it's come back to me. <laughs> like I need to, <laughs> um, to maybe have more letters behind my name. So people listen to me in a different way around how to shift the system. Um, I, <laughs> I, I think that like, I just put more into focus to things that I've always believed about schools, you know, that like, you know, we're, you're a human first. Um, and like, you know, yeah, you're a student, teacher, counselor, all these other things. Right. But I need to treat you as a human who comes in with a lot of stuff. We all come in with a lot of stuff and, you know, and really focusing on, you know, a lot of schools will, or districts will tout, Oh, we're trauma informed and all these other things. Right. But like, what does that really mean? And if you say that, um, then what are you doing about it? Cause just me having an awareness of implicit bias or that trauma exists, you know, it doesn't do anything unless you're going to like make it actionable. Um, and so looking at what we're doing, um, we're not, we're not meeting the needs of the people who come to our buildings, um, with, um, with race, like, well, actually, and I mean, I'm saying the dirty word because when I was even in a meeting the other day, someone's like the diversity in our school. I'm like, I'm going to be plain about it. Diversity means a lot of different things. We're talking about race and let's say the word race, because that's what we're talking about. Um, with, um, SES, you know, um, like, what are we doing? Um, why do we quit? Like, why do we just continue to blame? Oh, it's, it's, it's the fact that like, they don't have access to resources and that's why they're not doing well in school. Well, is that really true when a, when a white student who was below the poverty line still scores higher than a, um, a black student who makes, whose family makes over 200,000 a year. Right. And so, um, this year has provided me the opportunity to use my voice more, um, and that my voice isn't as shaky as maybe it once was before. And I need to continue to use my voice um, though, because not everybody's going to um, embrace what I have to say, but I have to continue to say it because I'm in it for the kids. And if I keep that focus that like, I'm really here to support kids and what they need um, and to shake up the system um, because what we're doing has not worked ever for students of color. And so we need to do things differently. Yeah. Go ahead, Steve. Well, Jamila, I, I'm now I'm really wondering what it takes to keep your reward bucket full. <laughs> <laughs> because you're talking about a very challenging directive for yourself. Yeah. To, to do the things you want to do. And now we, we we all sit here and think, but who's gonna take care of Jamila? Um so practically speaking, what do you what do you do to kind of maintain your, your focus and kind of balance. Yeah, that's enough. Um, well, so I do like, I'm a big person. Like I like, I like to do, like I do my acupuncture every month and I do, I do a 90 minute CBD massage every single month. I do uh, my pedicure. I'm very good about sitting quietly. Those are some of the things that really help regulate me. But then also I've come to find, and especially with, I mean, not that racial issues haven't existed, but especially after just kind of the, the spectacle that we were as a country last year around George Floyd. And um, I've like found that I really need to surround myself with more um, black women. And oh. so I've been really intentional about um, seeking out 
those friends more often than not that my other friends aren't important, but just being able to have that, that sounding board. Um, cause sometimes I'm like, am I imagining this? Is this real? Um, yeah. And so that's been really important for me because I find strength and having a common experience and, um, yeah, so it's, it's a bit of both, right? Because I do a lot of internal, but then the external of, of, of that people connection as much as humanly possible. And I just have this, this passion that I've had since I was a kid about doing the right thing. Um, and I can't, I won't, I won't remember exactly, but there's a Frederick Douglass quote about being true to myself um, and possibly incurring the ridicule of others rather than basically hating myself for being fake, you know? And so of course he said a lot more eloquently than I just did, (laughs) but that's where it really drives me. Like my, I don't believe just because of the confidence my parents instilled in me that um, I can't do what I set my mind out to do. Right. Like, and so I just believe, and even though I don't always get the mark, hit the mark, I still believe that if I just continue to do what I'm doing, seek help, you know, get like resources that I'll be able to succeed at some point in some fashion. And so I just keep pushing away at the system. I love it. And creating your own community as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a really great example. You have to though, you have to have community. Cause if you think you can do it alone, then you're, I mean, you're going to struggle um, because you, everybody needs that, that support system. And um regardless of like, you know, who you are that, you know, and I think with, with kids, they need it in a, in a lot of different ways. Right. Too. Like I think about, you know, the training we've had to the district around the neurosequential model and like how, how you need all these like different adults and how the, how this, how we used to be where you would have all these adults around a child. And so thinking about schools are set up that, or they could be set up that way even more, right? Because if you had your regular classroom teacher and then you had your elective or your specials teacher, and then you had access to your school counselor. And then you had, I mean, all these different adults who right. could be in your life providing that. And I, w- I want to see more of that. I want to see more of where all the roles in a school are, are seen equally, right? Because our custodian at my school, he's from Burundi. He has this this like this global um, experience of the world, but yeah. you know when does he get access to kids? And I think he should have it more access to kids because he has things to say. And we have a lot of kids who are from different places. I was in a classroom one time and I asked the kids. It was thirteen kids in the classroom and I said, "Whose family is from a different country?" Because we were talking about foods. Every child raised their hand. There was a couple um, from Africa, we had Honduras, we had El Salvador, we had, I mean, kids spoke French and they spoke Swahili and they spoke, I mean, just all these different languages. And I was just like, I got chills. I was like, this is the world. We have the world in this little classroom. And how are we celebrating that? How are we really, you know, bringing that to the surface? Like you have amazing things to offer, but the way we have school set up, that doesn't really get to show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The power and the intelligence of those kids needs yeah. to be tapped into. For real. For well, real. We, and we need to do a better job with our systems, right? You said, you know, no one can do this alone, right? Don't, don't do this work solo. But in my experience, you oftentimes have schools, if you think about them, right, as an entity doing it solo. You can mm-hmm. you have two schools right next door to one another. And it's night and day, right? Yeah. Like I just wish systemically that we took a lot of this 
from a leadership perspective and said, no, how do we get, how do we get principals regularly dialoguing, right? How do we, how do we get systems that are able to do this for the adults um, in a way that makes sense and that in turn will influence the supports that we can provide for kids? Well, I think some of that comes from the competition that schools feel between each other and especially around, you know, state testing. And so if I tell you the great things that I'm doing, then somehow you'll get a leg up on me or something like that. Right. You know? And so, and, and, and that comes from, we're not having a focus on kids. Um, and so it's just, and, and then teachings is this very personal thing, you know, like these are my kids, these are the thing, you know? And so, but like, I think they're all our kids. When I talk about my kids, I'm talking about the kids. I, when I first started in in 2006 in education, those are the same kids. Um, the kids that, Oh, there's a kid on LinkedIn who found me. Um, and I, he was, I was his counselor about five years ago and he told me he inspired, I inspired him to become a counselor and he's in a master's program, um, to be a counselor. Um, I'm almost going to get tears in my eyes again because it's, you know, and so it's just like, cause they're all of our kids. And, um, and so if we, if we get rid of, I'm in competition with you because I'm looking for resources. Um, and if, if I don't do as well as you, then you'll get more resources than me. If we eliminate some of that, um, if we let, if we stop paying Pearson, (laughs) um, all this money for, for assessments, um, if we take that out of the equation and we are talking and we focus on kids for real, as opposed to saying that's what we do, um, then we would dialogue more because we have the same common goal. We want to see Mm -hmm. um, kids succeed, not by um, dominant culture standards um, of you're supposed to be reading this many words by this time, um, you know, otherwise you don't meet standard. Or when we talk about this year is about learning loss. And I'm like, for who? For who? Who's, you know, who isn't learning this year? We have kids who can, at six years old, who can create Pear Decks. They can do Screencastify. They can do a Flipgrid. They know how to present in Google Meets. Um, they, they can do these amazing things with technology. Um, they've learned um, how to create a space for this, like a little office in their house to be able to like to access school. Um, they've learned the importance of friendships, right? Like the opportunity to be able to connect with other humans. And they've also learned some really hard lessons about how the world's not fair. Like my mommy doesn't have a job and we've had to move three times because of the pandemic and, you know, and so, um, the learning loss is an adult problem if it even exists, it's arbitrary because we created these standards that can be changed at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I just, there's just a lot of things where I'm just like, but why are we still doing it this way? Like, this doesn't even make sense. And in the pandemic, why are we pretending like this isn't happening? Cause that's what I feel like it's that we're doing. It's like, Oh, this isn't really happening. Okay. Okay. So 500,000 people are dead. People don't have jobs. Businesses are closing, but we're going to still do school the same way. I just, that doesn't make any sense. It feels very archaic. It feels, just doesn't feel right. I don't know. Like, I don't really have words around it, but it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. As we get, I know we're going to get close to the end. So I have to ask this question. I want to go back all the way back to that teacher at the juvenile detention center who was, sounded angelic 
mm-hmm. had had a great idea, almost like a one room country schoolhouse sort of expert, someone who could take kids where they were. How do we translate? That's magical. How do we translate that to to our schools? Um, are there some practical ways to to look at that to say how do we bring that model of meeting kids where they are and, and accepting them where they are into day to day school is and that's a huge question but any couple little practical thoughts would be great. Well, I'm going to preface this by saying that I think she was allowed to do that because they were in some people's minds kind of throwaway kids. And so I think that being allowed to do whatever she wanted to do with kids that people didn't believe who were going to succeed is why she had the autonomy to do that. Um, And so that's not my belief, but I think that's a belief of, of, of the folks, some of the folks who allowed her to do those things. Um, I think that we need to stop running schools like businesses um and so that's <laughs> I, was fish- a- <laughs> I was fishing for that <laughs> so that's like a big a big piece of it though because you know we're not producing cogs we're producing human beings and and so when I like I feel like my educational experience is so different than the one that I'm, I am living through like I'm trying to provide for other people um we didn't have as much testing we had testing fourth, eighth, and 10th, I think that's what it was. Not every single year, not multiple times a year. And so I think that once we like stop treating schools like businesses, we go back to focusing on kids. And the reason why we're there is educating kids and each and every kid, as opposed to, because when you say all kids, sometimes we start lumping, right? Like, you know, just like, oh, the Asian kids or the black kids and not thinking about every black child doesn't have the same experience. And so to like say that we can do X, Y, and Z with this group of kids, it's like saying like you could do the same thing with like you have three kids in your home that you can do the same thing with each one of those kids. Even though they're living in the same home, their lived experiences, who they are, their personalities, they're all very different. And so, um, yeah, we just need to like start treating schools like schools, um, thinking about the majority of kids in um, public education now are students of color. And so thinking about what do we need to do differently? You know, um, assessments would be one, getting rid of all the assessments. I'm thinking about more um, talk, right, for kids. Because if you think about, if I just speak about like my heritage, it was illegal for a person like me to be able to read and write. And so think about the oral traditions that come along with being a black person in the US. Yeah. Or even in Africa, there's a lot of oral traditions as well. But thinking about, I learn best when I speak. And so sometimes you'll hear me and I'm just like kind of babbling on <laughs> because I'm literally processing as I'm speaking and then I'll come up with something, you know, um, letting kids be more creative. Because we'll talk about these creative things in high school, but you've already beat the creativity out of kids by having them doing lockstep stuff from the age of six all the way to high school. Yeah. You know? And so I guess we need to start thinking about what we're trying to do. What is the purpose of school? If it's just to get them from A to B, okay. A to Z, I guess that'd be A to Z. <laughs> then we, we've done that right for 
70-ish percent of the kids who start in, in education. And that's just, you know, that's the general as opposed to Native Americans is half of, of Native American kids graduate um, for black and brown kids. Like it's a little bit more than that, you know? And so it's mostly white and Asian who have the highest graduation rates. But if that's the point is just to say, we push kids through the educational process, then we're doing that. If we're talking about um, sparking the love of learning, if we're talking about um, trying to get great readers, trying to get global leaderships, um, global leadership out of kids, like being able to converse in multiple language, like languages like we do in other countries. If we're trying to get global citizens, we're not accomplishing that. Yeah. But if we're trying to get just, if we're manufacturing um, graduates, then about 70% of the time then we're doing that. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think that is A to B. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. that's a good Freudian slip, Steve. I'm wondering because you said you were you were fishing for that. What are your thoughts on this? What's coming well, up for you? You know, I what comes up for me because I'm old enough, but I remember distinctly when the business model invaded education. Mm. I, I remember going to a conference when all of a sudden I, I woke up and realized this is what this is about. We're trying, we think we can do education better using a business model. And um, I would say it was between 15 and 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. and, and it's clearly gone that very data driven, not that there's, you know, data has its very important part in our life, of course, but it was very data driven and, and, and competitive. It brought in this competitive, so it really was almost driving a wedge into the community that schools should mm -hmm. be. And I said, if, if I care as much about the kids in my fellow English teachers classes as I do care about my own, then I'm in a community. Yes. If I'm just looking to see that mine beat theirs, then I'm in a competition. And I right. think that's what's happened in schools and it's to the detriment, especially mm -hmm. of our marginalized kids. Yeah. Hear, hear. So interesting to hear you say that. And it's sad, I think it's, yeah. Um, well, Jamila, I wrote it down. Uh, we are not producing cogs. We are producing human, human beings. Um, I, I'm extremely grateful for your, for your time today. It's, I mean, this is someone that works with you and has seen you do your good work. You, I hope you, I hope you hear and are able to acknowledge that you are changing the system. And it's so cool to watch you do what you do. Um, and your school, your students are lucky to have you just like that student that called you that's, you know, you changed that kid's life, which is so cool. Yeah. So Thank you for giving us your time today. Um, it's been an honor and I hope you're, what is it? 16 hours, 17 hour? 18. 18 hour. <laughs> 18 hour drive um, goes safely. So thank you. Thank yeah. you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. This has been really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate you, Jamila. It's so fun to get the chance to talk to you for a, an hour. How nice yeah. is that? Love it. <laughs> for eight beats, you're going to breathe out for eight beats, and you're going to hold your breath 
for eight beats. Now when you hold your breath, it's kind of like continuing to let it go. It's eight beats in, eight beats out, and hold. Alright, here we go. Two, three, four, let the air out. Six, seven, eight. Breathe in. Standing, stand up and walk. Left and walk. And walk. And walk. Now breathe in. Breathe it out. Eight, eight, eight. Breathe in. Lift your arms up. Easy as that. Five, six, seven, eight. See you later.